You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, CSS and HTML. We've invited Amy Knight on to help us beautify our stories with CSS. She's a software engineer, podcaster, panelist, blogger, and speaker. CSS is the bane of many web developers, except that one dude with the black turtleneck. We avoid working with them as much as possible. Amy has written a very informative article on her blog about demystifying CSS and explaining what's going on under the hood. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? I'm just kind of back to work. Uh, You know, we've hit the ground running. We've got a bunch of new clients. Uh, upper management was kind of all gone the last week and a half. And a, a lot of people seem to come to me when that happens for whatever reason. So I've just been heads down coding and running around, you know, fighting fires pretty much for the last little bit. So I'm not really fighting a lot other than that. How about you, Amy? Uh, I will say the weather. <laughs> like we were talking about uh, on, before we got started, I live on a huge hill. And so whenever it snows, I'm kind of trapped. <laughs> so Friday night when it snowed, I had like all these intentions of finishing up work and going to the gym and that didn't happen. Um, I did finally get out on Saturday afternoon and now I'm preparing again for more snow and potentially getting trapped. So I've parked my car in a different location in hopes that I will be able to get out uh, at some point tomorrow. So maybe that's what I've been battling last week and a little bit this week. (laughs) I understand that. Uh, I had to come over and pick up Will. We do our developer launch pad on uh, the second Saturday of the month. And he's got a big hill on his driveway and a hill getting into the neighborhood. And so I just drove over and picked him up at the entrance to the neighborhood so that he could actually come out with us this past Saturday. <laughs> That's, but but I also, it's like gorgeous up here. So I love it, except when it snows. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. Well, I've been letting it linger all afternoon. Uh, so sad about Dolores O'Riordan. I was a big Cranberries fan back in school, uh, high school, college days. Um, so just sort of listening to a lot of, uh, cranberries l- this afternoon. Oh man, I hadn't um, heard that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found out, I think when I was at lunch, I saw it on Facebook. So, um, over the holidays, I updated one of our services at work. Uh, I got it all working past all my unit tests. I even built in backward compatibility so that we didn't have to break all the apps that were using it. And for a couple of weeks, it's been working great but only the using the backward compatibility. So I started updating one of the apps to use the new endpoints and ended up spending about a day bouncing back and forth between the app and the service to get it working. Because while it worked with all of the unit tests and sending things in through Postman, what was coming in from an app, it just 
was not working right. So that was my week last week. Yeah, um, no unit test survives first contact with reality. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. That's funny. I like that. <laughs> After this week, though, I will be a certified Scrum developer slash agile engineer. Um, it's actually a bit of a lengthy process. You have to take multiple classes and work in a Scrum environment for over a year. And I'm finally taking the last class at the end of this week. Since we're talking about CSS, I've got something to educate you on how to use it for IOTs. This week for IOTs, I have an educational slideshow titled The CSS of the Internet of Things. This educational slideshow focuses on how to write CSS for devices by creating device agnostic CSS styling. Luis Rodriguez, a UX designer and UI developer, looks at how to style your user interfaces using CSS and HTML5 on smart devices such as interactive TVs. He discusses the problems with embedded CSS and then gets into the details of building elements and styling them using the interactive TV as the example. It's a really cool slideshow to, to go through, especially if you like working with Internet of Things or smart devices. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Will, who's talking to us this week? Well, we got an email from Kim. It says, Dear Will and BJ, I've been listening to your podcast for over a year now, and it has really inspired me throughout my journey from my PhD in ecology to becoming a software developer slash data scientist in finance. You guys have great advice and fantastic attitudes towards learning, but there's one thing I have difficulties agreeing with. I really think that the employer should give you training opportunities and make sure you stay up to date with the latest with the latest advancements in your field. Of course, the training should be relevant to your position and the responsibility to find the right training should be mostly the employee's responsibility. It really should be in the employer's interest to make sure the employees develop too. So I would not think that a company that does not pay for some training is a good place to stay. Perhaps this is partly a difference in workplace culture. I'm in Sweden, but I think you would agree to at least some of these points. Thanks for all the inspiration and tips. Will and Kim have been talking back and forth in, on email, but uh, one thing that was said is that employers should offer training and should help you keep up with tech, but you don't want to be in a position of relying on them to do so. Yeah, I mean, it kind of comes down to the stuff that we were talking about in the Build Your Own Story episode of not letting somebody else determine what your story is. You know, it's right. you want to direct your career. It's great if your employee, your, your employer is going to help you with that, but you still have to make it work, even if they're not. So you want to kind of decouple yourself from it. So I say, I have an interesting thought on this. If I could chime in too, really quick. Yeah. So one thing I've kind of um, like discovered in my career, like I haven't been doing this, you know, terribly long. I've been doing this like about three years um, as I changed careers, but I've found the best balance to be like, I've worked in startup environments where you, you're working, you know, a lot more hours than than typical, like, you know, a lot more like on the clock for that specific employer more than your 40 hours and like being on call and, and that kind of stuff. Like when you're constantly on call and, and doing that, it really drains you, I think of your energy and your enthusiasm to want to keep up to date and learn more. So kind of like the, t the 
my philosophy on it is like, as long as my employer um, has realistic expectations of like, you know, what they'll get out of me day to day. And, and, you know, of course there's going to be deadlines from time to time where you have to work extra, but as long as it's not like a reoccurring thing that I have the energy like at night and on the weekends to go learn on my own. I, I wish it was, I wish employers would give us the opportunity to study and stuff, but I'm not like a little bit of training, maybe like a conference or something once a year, but I'm not so sure. Like it's kind of like a, a dream come true to be in a place where like you get to do it every week or something like that. Yeah. So. And, and that's kind of where I was going with it. You know, I've worked, um, you know, I've, I've been in tech for well my whole career. And what I've seen is like companies will train you on the stuff that they're doing right now. Yeah. And then they make a, they'll make a change in direction. And if you don't already have that skill set, you get cut. Yeah. And so you don't ever like, it's more about uh, managing your personal risk than it is about what the employer should or shouldn't do. Yeah. Yeah. That, I don't know. I just, we hear, I feel like as developers, like coming from a, you know, this not always being my career, we're in a really, we're very fortunate. Um, And I just, it's important to remember that I think. (laughs) Yeah. I feel very fortunate because where I work, we have a training program that will help you grow into your career. That's so, awesome. yeah, they they have different paths and you can say, okay, I'm on the developer path and then pick classes to take. Uh, we even have it as part of our um, performance plans that get reviewed to do so many trainings because uh, they want us to stay up to date. And it's it's really nice. That said, I still have my own Pluralsight account and use other tools to help be in control of my own education because there's things that I want to learn that aren't going to be offered there or aren't really relevant to the job I'm doing now, but it's something I would like to have that skill set. Yeah, and totally. So. Like I love when employers offer like Pearl side or even just like a book club between the developers or lunch and learn like things like that, I think are very attainable. Yeah. I've actually gotten it cleared with management where I work for me to put on some lunch and learns for my team. So that's awesome. Um, yeah, we we got to awesome. do that. And it gets me, it, it's, it's helping me learn too, right? Cause that gets me presentation skills and, and all that. Cause I'm kind of aiming for a slightly different vector on the career a little bit. So it, it works out well, but I mean, yeah, I, I just wouldn't rely on an employer for that. And the other thing that, that also feels a little sketchy to me is like, if you get a Pluralsight account from an employer and then you get on there and let's say you're a C sharp developer, and then you start looking at, at node <laughs> you know, are they going to, are they going to interpret that as this guy's about to jump ship? You know, like I, I always, and I'm probably a little bit more paranoid than I probably should be. Um, Cause I was around for like the waves of outsourcing. Hmm. And, and so it's, I guess it's a little bit different perspective and I'm not sure it's really that way now. Interesting. No. Wow. Yeah. Well, Hey Kim, thank you so much for the commentary and the great email. We got a lot out of this. Just the conversation here was really good. Send us another email with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. And guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Google+. We're also on Path and Tumblr. And as of this past weekend, we finally posted our first thing on Instagram. It's a picture of me and Will with beer, but hey, you know. And absolutely no one is surprised.
<laughs> but uh, you guys can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter Live every Monday evening. We talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer a few listener questions or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Amy Knight is a former figure skater turned software engineer. She's a graduate of Nashville Software School here in town, where she focused on JavaScript, Node.js, and Ruby on Rails. Outside of work, she's a panelist on the JavaScript Jabber and Angular Air podcasts, and an avid runner, lifter, and reader. As a type A personality, she's not at peace unless she has a set of challenges in front of her. And, uh... Will and I both understand that. Yeah, so I got to ask since you know that that came up. Um, you know, did you get a break at Christmas? <laughs> did you get time off uh, from work? Yes. Yeah, I did too. How how long did you make it when you were <laughs> off work before you actually wrote a line of code? <laughs> oh, not long at all. I I don't think I can go a day without opening my computer. I did yeah, on occasion. I will like if I'm you know around family or something like that, um, just to give them my undivided attention. But yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. I made very it forty one hours. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's a that's a good long time. I'm not sure I could go that long. <laughs> well, I was sick. I was sick. For it. <laughs> he he told us that he was going to to take uh, what was it like two weeks off, oh, and I said you won't man. make it four days. Two weeks. Oh, <laughs> I give you. I give you credit. <laughs> yeah. So our theme for this year is build your story. And Amy, you've built a really fascinating story. I first heard about it when you were on the Code Newbie podcast. Oh man, so long ago. <laughs> There's a question that I like to ask all of our guests before we really get into the episode. Uh, that is, what caused you to first become interested in software development? Oh, yeah. So I'll try to answer this like in kind of 60 seconds. Um, you know, if, if it can be 60 seconds spent, you know, as you said, full, full life pretty much is competitive figure skater. Um, in college, I kind of focused on like marketing and that's what I ended up doing after college. Uh, so it was in that role that I was working alongside developers and I was like marketing slash project management. Uh, like I worked in a small advertising agency, so we kind of wore a lot of hats and it was probably like a good year and a half, two years where, uh, they had an expression engine site. The company had changed offices and I kept asking the developers, like, can you guys just go in and update the address? And as a project manager, like, you know, we still had like, you know, our own standups every morning. And I just got tired of mm -hmm. asking. <laughs> and so like one weekend, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to figure this out myself. Uh, so I did. And like, I, I was hooked. Um, I like, I, I didn't want to leave the house, which I, I'm learning. Well, I've, I've learned like in the past year and a half or so that it, you definitely need to be more well-rounded and stuff like that. But like, I just was so hooked at first that I would like come up with excuses of like why I wouldn't want to like go shopping with my girlfriends or something thing. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I was hooked. And, you know, you're making changes on the live site. So I was just like, tweaking CSS here and there just to like watch it change and then revert it back before anybody can tell in the morning, you know, this is like a small like site and nobody is looking at it. So, <laughs> but the developers, I, I was kind of friends with them. So I kind of like told them how I was really interested in it. And they just encouraged me to, to go from there. And the rest is history. <laughs> Nice. I think that's really awesome. I love hearing how people get into it. And I, I really like that you were around a good group of developers that encouraged you yeah. to, to pursue I, it. Yeah. 
you hear so much about the stereotype of developers being elitist and things like that. And it's not really the case that much anymore. No, he was um, great. I still am in touch with so many people that I knew when I first got started. And it's awesome. So a lot of web developers avoid CSS or cascading style sheets as much as possible. And the lucky ones like me get to have standards that once they're set, they no longer have to worry about them or they're someone else's problem. Uh, some developers even have trouble understanding the difference between an ID and a class and how to appropriately use them. Oh yeah. I've seen their check-ins. <laughs> uh, I, I got that line from one of your stories, Oh man, like putting it, <laughs> like giving a hundred instances on a page, the same ID. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, I can, I can feel like my scalp heating up <laughs> from being irritated by that. Just thinking about it. Ugh. Yeah, that was a mess. So Amy has come on to the show to answer some of our questions about what's actually happening when we apply CSS to our websites. First, we're going to talk about how the browser understands and interprets the CSS that we write. Then we'll discuss some of the common mistakes that developers make when working with CSS. So to get us started, how does the browser know what to do with the style sheets and where to apply them? Totally. Um, so, and I'm going to, I guess I'll probably go through, you know, like my medium post a little bit. I've also given a talk on this um, and I can probably, I don't know if you guys do like show notes, but I can pr provide links to all that when we finish up. But, you know, the first thing that the browser does is, you know, it, it goes and fetches your HTML. That's before it does anything. It's, you know, it's got to do that. So it goes and fetches that um, either off of like your disk or network, probably if you're regular website. Um, but so it starts, the browser starts, you know, reading your HTML page. And if you have a style sheet in there, uh, it's going to encounter that link tag. And at that point, before it does anything, uh, it goes and fetches a style sheet. And that's when it starts what you would like say, quote unquote, is the parsing process. So, like the parsing process for HTML and CSS. Um, although different in a lot of ways, it's still very similar in a lot of ways. So I guess to back up too really quick, you know, I kind of dug into this because, uh, you know, I don't have a traditional computer science background. So a lot of this stuff was like more low level um, than what they got into, you know, in, in the boot camp. We maybe spent like a day or something on, on stuff like this. So I'll throw around some words and I'll try to uh, explain those if you have newer developers who are not familiar with these words. So really, if you want to break it into like chunks this process. So once it gets once it gets um, that style sheet, it's going to go through something called conversion, tokenization, and then lexing or parsing, which are kind of the same thing. So conversion, you know, the browser, when it receives your style sheet, it's literally just like raw bytes. It doesn't look like CSS as we write it. Uh, so once it does that, then it goes through the tokenization phase. So um, some people who are listening probably have heard of an AST in JavaScript, which is an ab abstract syntax tree. And tell me if I'm going too fast or I need to slow down or anything. No, this is great. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, good. So, oh, just, just, just an FYI, I know Will said that he has a CS degree. I do not. My degree is in okay. psychology, and I'm completely self-taught. Awesome. So, I found like I read through your your blo your uh, 
blog post and was just like, I read it two or three <laughs> oh, times because I'm like, this is really <laughs> good. Makes me feel good. Good. I just I love digging deep. I I, I don't. I, I love like reading and digging deep. I'm one of those developers who just like can't go deep enough. Anyway, so picking up where we left off. Uh, so then we go through that tokenization phase, which is when you go through the conversion process and you go through tokenization. So um, you already have like your, your style sheet has been converted to something that looks a little more like CSS, but it has to break that up. So it's going to break up like a curl, an opening, an opening curly brace. It's going to, break up that kind of stuff like um your selectors it, so it doesn't look like uh i i have a, it's hard to do this without my slides so i have a visual in my slides that um like you can imagine kind of like an array if we're thinking about html that array would have like a uh, a start tag and then it would have um an attribute name then like your equal sign then an end tag so rather than it being like one long string with all of that it's like an array of tons of strings that are just like these different tokens yeah it's kind of like a dictionary type setup yeah. where you can yeah. hit it look up yes so so once you have everything uh broken up into those valid tokens then you go on to lexing and parsing and this is where like the html and css that process is going to be a little bit different because what lexing and parsing is it's identifying the type of each token based on um, what they call is like the expected grammar so the browser knows whether or not it's reading an html sheet or a css style sheet and so you know, if it if it gets HTML and something that's supposed to be CSS, it's going to be like, you know, I, I don't know what to do with this. I can't I can't parse this because, uh, you know, this isn't this isn't like valid uh, anyway. So, so that's what the lexing and parsing process is. It's it's knowing um, you can think of that basically as like, you know, understanding the English language. It's it's understanding like based on what I'm saying, I'm speaking English and, and it's, it's going to, you're going to know to interpret what I'm saying based on that. Yeah. We used to use that, you know, back in the day, um, because the parsers were widely different. I mean, this is like, uh, Netscape and IE days and you could actually put invalid CSS in there. Oh, I didn't know and, that really. Yeah. Wow. And so it would pick it up on one and not on the other. And so that's how you could do your browser sniffing. I didn't know that. So <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to go there again. <laughs> so that's one. So that's another area too, where it's very different. So, um, HTML is what is, or I'm sorry, CSS is, and like JavaScript are like conventional parsers. And I think, um, I wrote down some notes. We'll probably get into this a little bit later. Whereas, uh, HTML is not a conventional parser. Uh, it's what they call is like not um, context free. So when you give the browser like ill formed HTML, it ha it's going to be smart enough to, you know, render that no matter what. So uh, when it's going through and parsing that, that's what we mean by not context free, meaning it has to take for like the given object that it's on or the given, you know, uh, chunk that it's on it has to know what comes before and what comes after it. Whereas with CSS, um, that's not the case. Right, because CSS is declarative instead of imperative. Yeah, it's like with um, CSS, it's like what you know, what you put in, you're always going to get the same thing out. Okay. So hopefully that answers that question. Covered <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, well, how is this different from the way the browser understands JavaScript? Yep. Then, um, so I think like the first thing that people maybe who haven't really dug into this, they don't always realize is. Um, 
you know, that the CSS engine and the JavaScript engine are, are totally different. Um, so CSS and HTML are parsed uh, via the rendering engine, whereas JavaScript is like the JavaScript engine. So like V8 for Node or something like that. Um, uh, and when, when we ask like, you know, how is it different? Um, in a lot of ways, it's actually very similar. But I, I would say like, the thing that I had noted here is like CSS and JavaScript are different because your JavaScript a lot of times is reaching for your CSS. And so they have to go separately. So CSS is blocking, which means that no JavaScript can be executed. And, and this is by default. You know, you can change this if you want based on uh, different like attributes you would give things. But by default, it's blocking because, uh, you know, if you went ahead and executed all your JavaScript before the CSS was done, you know, it could be possibly like very jarring for the user. Uh, and, and then, like I said, a lot of times like your CSS, or I'm sorry, your JavaScript is going to be reaching for things based on your CSS. And so if the CSS isn't done, JavaScript can get wrong answers. So I'd say, you know, it's, it's not um, really different as far as parsing. Uh, both CSS and JavaScript are uh, context-free like we were talking about. Um, it's more like the HTML and CSS that are a little bit different like we were talking about. So from a debugging oh, yeah. <laughs> standpoint, you could have busted CSS that you may not realize until you're trying to do something with JavaScript. Um, well, you could have, I would say, maybe um, the browser is rendering your CSS in a way that you're not expecting. And, and yeah, mm -hmm. and so potentially um, you would write your JavaScript in a way where um, you're trying to like get at something that might not be there. <laughs> Yeah, or you're creating elements that um, have got CSS classes on yeah. them, and you don't see it until the JavaScript runs, yeah. so it's a runtime error. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, could, I could see that being a problem where you think it, you may be thinking it's a JavaScript error, and you go in and it's, oh, hey, this is how the CSS is working, not my JavaScript. So. Yeah, my favorite is when you get somebody that uses uh, jQuery to store page state um, in just controls, and... And they build everything with jQuery, like all the dynamic content on the page is built that way and put together that way. And you talk about just nasty to debug CSS problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been fortunate enough that I haven't had to do a lot of jQuery in my day. <laughs> or I've done yeah. jQuery, just not like, well, you know, I've always had like a front end framework to be able to use. So I've been fortunate. <laughs> yeah. jQuery was the bomb when it came oh, out. I still, I'm, I, I still think it was pretty cool. You know, that was like the very first thing I learned as far as JavaScript. But building complex applications, I've been lucky to always be able to use a framework. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very nice. When I first started learning, Will was my mentor. And he made me use vanilla JavaScript on everything. And CSS as well. Yep. So I've heard about the CSS object model, and I'm, is it CSS OM? I don't know. Uh, what is that, and kind of how does it affect the rendering? Yep. So um, you know, as we were talking about, so maybe I'll back up to and and um, try to visualize this for people listening. And like I said, you know, hopefully they can go and maybe check out the blog post and check out um, my talk because I have some really good visuals in there, but. Uh, if we step back, so first, you know, the browser parses here, starts parsing the arch, uh, HTML, you know, encounters that link tag, like we said, then it starts parsing, parsing the CSS. But ultimately, the browser has to create the document object model um, for 
your HTML, and then it also has to create the CSS object model, which are two completely different data structures to the browser. And, and so how do they affect each other? They don't affect each other at all um, as those two independent data structures. But how they do affect each other is the browser then, uh, once it's constructed the CSS object model and constructed the DOM, then it mashes those two together into something called the render tree. And, yep. and that is how um, they affect each other, is once they are in that render tree, um, then the render tree is more of, you can think of the render tree um, as, it's kind of like the next step the browser has to go to before it can lay things out. Because um, if, you know, we'll say you might have like an H2 tag and underneath that a paragraph tag and then an H3 tag, um, well, maybe your CSS is going to um, absolutely position <laughs> uh, like a div that has that uh, H3 tag or something. It's going to absolutely position that somewhere. That's probably not great CSS or something, but just to kind of try to visualize this for people. So the render tree then has that information. So the render tree uh, is a more accurate representation of what things are going to look like when they're laid out. That makes sense. I mean, it's kind of that the, the render tree is a projection of the CSS object model and the HTML. Yes. So, I mean, what's from there, what's the process the browser goes through when rendering a web page? Yep. So, um, like I said, so the first thing, like we kind of just went into that. So it's going to mash that DOM and CSS object model together into the render tree. Once it has the render tree, then it goes through layout, paint, and composite. Uh, so layout is, um, I think a lot of people sometimes don't necessarily um, always think through the different properties just because, you know, we're developers and we like to program and not always do markup languages <laughs> like CSS. But uh, layout has to do with any properties that affect like positioning, size. It's going to like include calculating how much space an element's going to take up. And then the other thing in the layout phase is that uh, it's important to keep in mind that the parent elements can affect their children, and then sometimes children elements will affect the parent. Um, like, like right. for instance, um, when the browser is going through the layout process, it's going to calculate um, the width of that particular node, but then the height is calculated based on the children. And so I think a lot of people, like as you're debugging and thinking through things, um, it's important to keep that kind of stuff in mind. So, so anyway, so then once we go through the layout process, um, then the browser does a paint. So anytime that you trigger a layout, um, the browser is always going to have to trigger a paint. So when possible, um, you always want to like just use properties that trigger a paint event so you don't have to go through the whole layout process. Anyways, but painting um, is really just like the process of converting those uh, nodes in the render tree into uh, the actual pixels on the screen, because now that we have the size, we can actually, like, quote-unquote, paint them. Uh, so that would be, like, anything like colors and images, borders, shadows, stuff like that. Uh, and, and then we go on to composite. And so for painting, you want to think um, that the drawing, that painting process is kind of done usually in multiple layers with compositing. And we'll go through like multiple rounds of painting because if you think of a CSS, you have the cascade and it's kind of like a recursive process as it goes down um, with the cascade and specificity. But then you go on a composite um, and, and I think we'll probably get a little bit deeper into compositing, but 
just at like a base level. It's like kind of like Photoshop layers. It's just the action of like flattening those painted parts and then putting all those um, like chunks of painted parts together. Yeah, I mean, we deal with the same thing because um, I, I I deal with uh, you know printing software, and we have to kind of do the same thing where we we calculate the layout first, and then we render pieces yep. of it, and then composite yes. those over. It's the same the same kind of structure. Yep. It's just basic graphics programming. Yep. <laughs> you know, fun and games. <laughs> See, I was thinking in terms of audio editing because. I edit all of our, our episodes and, and master them. And I was thinking it sounds a lot like what I do in that process where I'll, I'll edit the episode and I'll take what we say during the episode and I'll add it to a layer of our opening and closing. And then I'll add the layer of the music, then, you know, set it so that the talking overpowers the music and, you know, all this, this other stuff in there, but that, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were going over. Yeah. You're kind of doing, um, uh, I guess it's, you know, it's the audio version of the visual pretty much. Yeah. I see that. I feel like I need to come up with a skating or like workout analogy now, but (laughs) 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 But maybe that'll come to me later. (laughs) Well, so you do your CrossFit and then you got your protein shake. And then you, you composite uh, those things together <laughs> to And then and then you composite that with I gotta be at the gym in twenty three <laughs> minutes. And then you're set, right? You got the whole you know, like that's your layout and your render tree right there. <laughs> like when you know? I take I mean, my pre workout uh, and it starts flow like flowing through my veins and I use the pre workout and like all that goes together for me to like do a lift. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Will mentioned CrossFit, and my first thought was, you know, if you have a gre- a vegan CrossFitter, which they tell you about first. <laughs> That's a great joke. <laughs> well, it depends on the Z index of the. Uh, <laughs> actually, they're like, which frame is it? Oh, that is a great joke. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, speaking of things that make me feel like a joke, how do you tell when a particular or where a particular CSS entry gets used. This is something I get burned by a lot where, you know, because it's declarative and elements are coming up, sometimes being dynamically rendered. Uh, sometimes some goober has used string concatenation to come up with the CSS class that happens to be referenced in the file. How do you, how do you approach this stuff? So the way that your style is going to applied. Uh, it's all about specificity and that cascade. Um, so really, basically what the what the browser does when it goes through all of this, um, the cascade has to take uh, into account like the importance of the styles that are getting applied. So if you have um, like the important flag, which is such a code smell, don't use that. Um, yeah. And then and ha- it's all over. Mine <laughs> right now. That's, that's, I'm that's that. definitely a code smell. Um, and then it has to take into account like the origin, meaning um, if it's a user agent style uh, versus like a style that we actually write and then specificity and then source order. So it takes all of those things and that's what it uses to calculate Um, the actual number that we'll give to a specific style. Because, you know, we all, like, kind of think, you know, CSS is like, oh, I hate it. And, you know, this is so, it's like, like, my talk is or my blog post it's magic but it's not like it's it's just you know the browser is following um 
code, just like any code that we write, it has to have like a systematic way of doing this, which is like why I, I wanted to dig into this stuff is because I felt like I was just kind of like blindly throwing darts at a dartboard. And I, I, you know, I, as I got better and better as a developer, I could like systematically debug my JavaScript. And I always felt like if there was a bug in my JavaScript, I could figure it out, you know, given enough time, um, I could like systematically figure out what was happening. But with my CSS, I just, I didn't feel the same way. And so uh, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. We'll get into this more later. But but that's why um, all this stuff was important to me. So anyways, so... <laughs> I, I completely understand yeah. that. Because the first project, like full on my responsibility project I had when training under Will was our podcast website. And I wrote all the custom CSS for that. And I felt the exact same way. Like when when I read... In your your blog post, the the throwing darts at a dartboard <laughs> and hoping it hits something, I'm like, yes, that is exactly yeah, how yeah. I felt. It, it was so <laughs> frustrating to me um, because I don't, I you know, I didn't like like feeling like I was just guessing. Um, you know, as programmers, we don't mm-hmm. we don't like to do that. Anyway, so um, they can you, people can go and check out my blog post for more specifics on this, but. Um, so the browser just has to like assign a weight to each rule or it assigns a number to each rule. Uh, so because when there's multiple, you know, a lot of times um, we have like multiple rules that are uh, being applied to a certain element. So the browser just needs a way to like negotiate that. So just at a high level, um, if you broke this up into like four different columns, uh, the first one would be like if you have an inline style that's going to give you the most points. And then in the second column, um, then you're going to count up the number of ID selectors. And then um, the third column is the number of class selectors, attribute selectors, uh, and pseudo classes. And then uh, your fourth column is going to be um, the number of type selectors and pseudo elements. So it's hard to kind of talk about this on a podcast. Definitely go and check out the blog post. But I find um, if you are trying to figure out why something, why a specific uh, rule is not getting applied uh, to your CSS, the first thing to do would be to like go into your developer tools and apply it to the element because that's going to give you uh, a higher specificity. So you'll be able to tell like, is the style you're actually writing like valid? And is it is it going to work? Is it or is it just not showing up because of a specificity problem? Uh, that's why I like using the developer tools for stuff like that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I use them all the time. I, I just about have to. Otherwise, I can't figure out where something's used. I, I, the thing that burns me more than anything, though, is when I have a chunk of CSS and I'm like, can I get rid of this? Mm, yeah. Because we have we had some people that were really verbose and they tended to copy oh. and paste. <laughs> And so I'm cleaning up a code base that's got a lot of that in it. I mean, it all works, but you know, you, you change something, you get rid of a chunk of CSS and then that removal doesn't do anything because there's some further down yeah. that, that they used. And so I, I haven't found a real good way to reverse engineer and go, is this used in this project? Yeah, that is- that's what I was about to ask. Is there a tool out there that can go, is this being there used There are anymore? a lot of tools out there. Um, I have not dug a ton into that because it hasn't been a challenge that I've faced as of yet. I have a feeling that may, I, I know that will change at some point in my career. Um, it may change sooner rather than later. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there are tools out there that that do that. So, Will, that might be something that you could look into is a tool to say, you know, 
is this chunk of CSS being used? Yeah, because that's that's the biggest pain point for me. Because you know, we, when you have software that's been around for a while, um, especially from you know when it's 10, 12 years old or or more, the old CSS is still there, and everybody's afraid to touch it because they don't know what's you know where it's actually used. And you know some of your you know some of your tools will help you a little bit on that, but like it's it's really hard, especially if it's dynamic in JavaScript. Uh, to even figure out where it's used. The only thing I've found is like, uh, you know, like control shift F in visual studio and just look for that chunk, you know, that part of that CSS class name or whatever, and hope mm-hmm. that you can find a usage and tell that it's being used. Right. Right. So something that, that I've been wondering about and you hear the term hardware acceleration with browsers, how does that hardware acceleration affect the loading of a page. Yeah. Um, so back to compositing. Um, so I, I included this because one thing um, that I didn't always, you know, understand. I heard everybody saying about like talking about hardware acceleration. And I didn't really. It was kind of a buzzword to me. I didn't really understand uh, what they meant. But mm-hmm. when we say hardware acceleration, what we're referring to is like that compositing phase that we talked about earlier. Uh, so. You know, before the the browser was written in a, you know, it, it didn't have compositing, so it would always have to use like the CPU. But with compositing, you use a GPU, and um, there are certain properties that uh, are actually going to trigger composite versus like a, a paint layout, something like that. So there are certain properties um, like transform or opacity. Um, like if you want to hide something uh, and you want to do that with uh, compositing or with hardware acceleration, you might like change the opacity of an element and, and try that because that's going to be more performant since you only have to go through the compositing phase. You don't have to do a paint phase. So, so that's where hardware acceleration comes in. And, you know, one thing that I was guilty of and I see so, so, so often um, is as developers, um, you know, myself included, a lot of times uh, we're quick to like reach for JavaScript to solve a problem when actually if we, if our CSS skills, when if I, I say we, you know, because I was guilty of this, you know, it, it, I knew, you know, if my CSS skills were better as they are now, I, I can tell, you know, when is CSS the right uh, tool to solve a problem and when is JavaScript the right tool to solve a problem because JavaScript is not always the right tool um, because JavaScript is going to you know use a user CPU instead of the GPU um, so CSS like we don't want to shy away from CSS because CSS is there for a reason <laughs> and it, it's there it's there to help yeah. us like that that's like the <laughs> quote of the episode I like that <laughs> I like that a lot um, and it, it leads right into the the next sort of set of questions which are about where developers get into trouble where do you see I mean, other than you know inappropriately using javascript where they shouldn't where do you see developers having trouble understanding how css um, works so for, for me for this you know when i first started digging more and more into css the thing for me was that um you know, like I said, I, I didn't always know when to reach for JavaScript, when to use CSS. But uh, and, and like we also talked about, I also felt like I wasn't able to debug my CSS like I was my JavaScript. But the mindset 
for writing CSS is very different than it is for writing JavaScript. So in JavaScript, like having um, a, a global variable is not typically a good thing unless like you actually need a global variable for a specific reason. But you want things like encapsulated in your JavaScript and you want things to be pure and not bleed all over the place typically. <laughs> but but with CSS, that that's the point of CSS. You want that cascade. Imagine like you know, I think um, like component-based styling is really good in a lot of aspects because, uh, you know, you easily get around that specificity problem and you win that war very easily, but there's always trade-offs. And so um, if you do component-based styling and you gain that specificity, you lose a cascade and, and, and that's cascading style sheets. Like that's a core component to CSS. So it requires a different mindset. Like you have to be okay with, because it, because it makes sense with CSS. Like if, um, if I have a color and I have to go into every single component and update that color if they want to tweak it um, versus like I have like a, a, a variable in my CSS that's just global and it, and I allow um, all my other styles to um, or all my other like uh, rules to inherit from that global variable and I only have to update that that color in one place and that's a good thing. Um, so yeah, it's just a very different way of thinking and also I think, um, a lot of developers, because CSS, like HTML, is a markup language, is not a programming language. I think a lot of people think maybe it's like wussy or something like that. <laughs> Myself included. Like, I'm guilty of all these things. <laughs> I, I understand. I remember, oh, I'm aging myself here. I remember in high school, uh, I was taking programming classes like C++, and uh, my friends were talking about, oh, yeah, I do programming too. I you know, I, I did this on my MySpace page with, with HTML and, and thinking HTML is not a real language, you know, um, and, and having that, you know, I guess arrogance about it. But then I got into, when I came full circle back to development, I got into web development and ended up writing a lot of HTML, mostly components, but, you know, I, I still end up writing a lot of it. And I, I really liked what you said about that being, um, well, that, that CSS requires a different mindset because that just, that makes sense. It's, it's not going to be the same as JavaScript. And I agree with you. I think that is probably going to be the area that most developers suffer or have the most difficulty is that they are trying to apply the rules of the JavaScript world to the CSS world or something like that. My lead front-end developer who was on a team with me when I first started, he even told me one time, he's like, yeah, I can tell when in your code you switch from C-sharp to JavaScript because you'll write JavaScript yeah. like C-sharp for about 30 minutes yep. to an hour, and then you'll start writing JavaScript. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have that, that same issue. I think the other thing that burns developers is the the way that CSS tends to build things is kind of a composition model, not a, not like an inheritance structure like you would have more in JavaScript or even in, you know, C sharp. It's, you know, you've got, instead of having a tree of things that you're looking at, it's like there's pieces in all these other places and you figure out which ones go. Yeah. And CSS is like other languages though, in that there's a lot of different ways to do the same thing. What types of considerations do you think developers need to take 
when choosing how to style their pages? Yeah, totally. Um, so one thing here that was like really interesting to me that I discovered um, as I was like kind of digging into this. So like this kind of piggybacks on what we were just talking about. It's important too um, to not dismiss the CSS and like to keep up to date on your on your CSS skills. Like now we have CSS Grid, um, Flexbox has been out there for a while now. Um, but I was reading like somebody um, actually like did a performance test on a Flexbox layout versus a floated layout. Like they took their floated layout and converted it to Flexbox and. Um, the floated layout took 14 milliseconds to render and the flexbox layout took uh, 3.5 milliseconds to render. So I think developers um, need to keep in mind, like um, they have to keep up to date on their CSS skills, just like they're doing on their JavaScript skills. Like, you know, people are really excited about JavaScript and they don't always uh, get super excited about CSS. But like, as you can see there, like, um, especially too with CSS being render blocking, uh, you want it to be as performant as possible. I agree with that. I mean, I think a lot of it too is just the um, like knowing how all these pieces fit together and where stuff happens, like what the video card does, especially with uh, graphics acceleration and all that, you know, all that jazz, like yeah, yeah, cutting down the number of repaints and all that. Like it's, yeah. it's very interesting to figure exactly. out how to structure CSS. To yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I was saying, um, like you would want to use like opacity uh, to, to potentially hide something. Um, versus like display none or something like that, because like a display none is going to have to um, like have to go through more rounds um, versus like just using composite. Yeah. I mean, we deal with this, um, you know, just like in Windows desktop programming, you know, you have, uh, you, you have messages that come in from the OS that say, I've got to repaint this part of the screen. And, and so like, if you're resizing a window, you know, you don't necessarily like, you don't want it repainting, on every part of the mouse drag. And so you, you, you'll paint the whole thing and have that in a buffer and then you just show it versus, you know, a, an actual redraw. And so you kind of have to optimize the same way. Um, if you're trying to get the CSS performance, which is, it's still hard for me to do it. I'll be honest. I can, I can see that being a big issue. Um, again, I, I'm lucky. I don't have to do a lot of that kind of, CSS performance type stuff because we have standards where I work that have been set <laughs> by designers and people with expertise like you in, in CSS. So um, I, I just get to go build things, which <laughs> from my perspective is nice, but I, I love this, um, this deep dive and something I didn't say this earlier, but Will and I have a term for it because um before getting into programming, I was a med student um, going through medical school. And when I would go uh, on a, a deep dive into something and just like really go full depth into learning something, Will called it going full med student. <laughs> I love it. That would totally be me. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so it sounds like, you know, from your description, I was like, she totally went full med student on this. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, with all of that, there's a lot around using tags with CSS. What are some of the common mistakes that developers make when trying to specify a tag using CSS? Yeah, so we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, um, but not just not understanding um, how that specificity is calculated. Uh, and two, like um, I say, you can go through and like add up these values. It's not a base 10 system, so you have to like be aware of that. 
but you can still go through and calculate things um, kind of like that. So I would say just that, like a lot of people get tripped up. Um, and I think, like I have a quiz what I give during the talk and, and usually people, um, I, a lot of people don't usually know the right answer. <laughs> so that just tells you, and I know for me too, like um, a year and a half ago, I wouldn't have known the answer either. Uh, if it's the same one on your, your blog post, I got the wrong answer <laughs> the first time I went through it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so, so I would say just that, like making sure, um, you know, you, you probably don't want to like make something overly specific too, if you don't have to, because the browser is going to have to like do more calculations there. So, you know, you don't like, don't slap on a bunch of IDs and classes just for the sake of it. <laughs> Use the cascade. <laughs> Right, because it's it's not a uh, it's not really quite a dictionary. It's not got a constant lookup time to figure out where something is. Yeah, and, yeah, because yeah, it has to recursively go through this over and over and over again. So, so what are the what are some of the things that developers do wrong when positioning elements within CSS? Uh, so, as far as positioning goes, um, I would say. <sighs> I, I don't know if I see a lot of people doing stuff wrong with positioning. Um, the only thing that, you know, came as a surprise to me, which I kind of mentioned a little bit uh, as we were talking about earlier, is how height and width are determined. So width being uh, computed based on like the current node styles and then height uh, being computed based on the children. Uh, and, and then to like, you know, as far as like what other things that our developers doing wrong again, like not keeping up to date on, um, on their CSS skills so that like they're still using like a floated layout to position things where they could be using Flexbox or something like that. So I would say those are like the common things that I see. Um, yeah. <laughs> Along that same vein, uh, we mentioned Z index before, um, are there any areas that developers get into trouble when they're stacking their elements using the Z-Index? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, in my blog post and in my talk, I have a completely uh, separate section devoted to Z-Index. And specificity and Z-Index were the biggest... Uh, the, I did like a Twitter poll to get um, thoughts on what was tripping people up the most. So those were the two I dug into. But I had no idea... Um, like I said, I failed failed my own quiz. You know, I didn't know. <laughs> but same thing for Z index. Um, when people are trying to debug Z index, I don't think a lot of people uh, know that Z index is all about something called a stacking context. And what a stacking context is um, is like you want to be able to look up your DOM structure and know um, where your stacking context begins because if you're trying to uh, apply a Z index to something in a different stacking context, it's not going to be able to move backwards or forwards. It's all based on uh, that current stacking context. So, um, and again, something has to have a position property in order for you to, for that Z index to work. Um, but, oh, sorry. So that's kind of the same sort of problem you have. Like if you, um, if you're trying to absolutely position something because you actually need to do that and you don't have its parent element where it's relatively positioned. You can yeah, do yeah, stuff with yes. that because um, I had to kind of yeah. do a WYSIWYG editor for documents. It's so like fake a page and have an area that they can edit and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I fought with that for 
hours and hours before I finally figured out, oh, yeah, I don't have the parent context is not set where the child knows how to render itself. And so it was doing it absolute relative to the next thing up that actually had a relative positioning on it. Um, That was that was awful trying to figure that one out. Yeah. And then I will say this, probably the most frustrating bug that I've seen a lot of like, you know, senior UI engineers um, hitting this and not knowing uh, is that there are different properties besides the index that create new stacking context. So like uh, opacity, um, different like transforms that you apply to elements, uh, those all create new stacking context. So it's uh, important to be able to know that because you could be creating a stacking context with a certain uh, property and rule that you're applying and not even know it. <laughs> I didn't realize that about opacity. I, I guess it kind of makes sense, though, because they, they have to use that for the compositing to figure out yep. where stuff yeah. is. So maybe there's like a fake element there, uh, like a virtual thing for for actually setting that or something. I, I don't know how they, they would do it inside the rendering engine, but it would kind of make sense that that would change it. Yeah, I, I haven't dug that deep, but... Yeah, potentially. <laughs> they're they're so the 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 rabbit hole like just goes forever. <laughs> yeah, I can I can see that. Um, so finally, we've talked about a few things within CSS, but how do you feel about CSS frameworks like Bootstrap? Do you feel like these are a crutch or a boon for developers? Um, you know, so. This is something like my mentor kind of ingrained in my head and it comes up like time and time again. I think like as developers, a lot of times we want like black and white answers, um, like use a framework, don't use a framework. But I think it all really depends on um, what you're trying to do. Like there are always trade-offs. And so um, to answer this question, like I think um, using like Bootstrap or Foundation, I think they're really good in a lot of cases because like if you need to do something quickly, um, they're going to, you know, normalize like cross browser differences easily and and stuff like that. Uh, But but if you have like, you know, um, like I've been working at Warner Brothers for um, like coming up on two years and um, like at Warner Brothers, you know, their 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 brand is everything and so you can't really you know you could use maybe like a grid or something from from those frameworks but you really need to be strong enough to be able to like do all of this yourself and you don't want to have like a lot of bloat in there like like pull in bootstrap and then you're just overriding a lot of things like i find i find a lot of developers doing that where they're pulling bootstrap or foundation and then end up um just having to like apply really like importance all over the place to override things uh when maybe if if you have the time like you don't want to have to do that (laughs) you want you would want to do it from scratch then i've seen the same thing as well um and I would I would agree with that on on the bootstrap. The other thing that I like about doing that though is that I can lay something out and you know get it going, and then I can have a design person actually move the bits around, and they don't it doesn't intersect badly with my code if I'm careful. Whereas I've noticed um, if I if I hand roll the CSS, I I seem to find that I get burned more by the designer moving stuff around. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just a lack of capability on my part or if that's a thing or not, but it, it definitely seems to 
I, I think there's a place for bootstrap and frameworks. It's just, yes. I wouldn't put it on a front facing client site. Probably, I, you know, like if you're doing something internal, you know, the company could have its own bootstrap CSS theme and they just say, Hey, everybody's using this, you know, build our CRUD apps. But, you know, like, like with Warner brothers, you know, you're going to have, you know, Bugs Bunny popping up on screen somewhere, you know, like how do you, there's not a bootstrap primitive for positioning Bugs Bunny. I don't think they've bloated it that far, at least. Um, so you kind of have to, <laughs> now I gotta look this up. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the other thing too, that I think will be interesting there to see what happens is, um, they have something coming out called Houdini, which is this task force from different browser vendors, um, different people that work on those different browsers that are coming together. Um, and they're creating this API to kind of hook into the CSS rendering engine. So like now with our JavaScript, a lot of times, you know, we can hook in like Babel and, and we can do so much stuff, but we don't have that power in our CSS. And so it'll be interesting to me to see you know, I feel like we'll have less and less um, need for those frameworks. And then we could just incorporate um, like different build tools from, you know, different things based on Houdini uh, to normalize things and stuff like that. Yeah. Like tree shaking would be really nice. <laughs> kind of <laughs> yes. like they do with uh, Angular. Um, yeah. yeah. Ooh, that would, that would save me a lot of pain at work. Cause then I could just leave the junk in there. <laughs> yeah. All those unused styles. Yeah. That makes sense. CSS is complicated and at times confusing, but it doesn't have to be something to avoid. While we don't have to know all the details of how our car works to drive it, knowing a little bit about what goes on under the hood can help when unexpected things happen. The same goes with development and especially things that affect the look of your website. We want to thank Amy for taking the time to come on the show and explain a few of these concepts to us. Will and I have a much better understanding of what's going on under the hood of the browsers now. Amy, thanks a lot. How can people find out more about your talk and get in touch with you? Definitely. Well, first off, thank you for having me. It was fun to hang out with you guys. Um, as far as getting in touch, usually Twitter, my uh, name there or, or my Twitter handle is Amy, A-I-M-E-E -E underscore night with a K. Uh, from there, you should be able to find my website. And from there, my blog. And from there, you should also be able to find a link to my talk. So Awesome. And I'll, I'll have links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Also, since you are here in the Nashville area, we want to extend an invite to come out to any of our developer launchpad meetups uh, at any time. So I need to. <laughs> yeah. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I want to share a hack that I used for learning what I've learned about CSS. And, you know, because I started way back. Um, the first web page I did literally was for NCSA Mosaic. So that's that's been a long time ago. We won't talk about how long ago that was. Um, but I've got a pretty good trick when you run into something that is frustrating like CSS, especially when you're around other developers that, that maybe are not comfortable trying to help you because they don't know either. And that's the way you do your Google searches. Instead of going, okay, I'm going to try to come up with the right keywords for this thing. So how does the CSS box model work? Instead of searching for that, type in CSS positioning sucks 
Because what you'll find is you'll get people, you'll go to, you'll end up on blogs where people have optimized for those keywords and are actually giving free content. And it's usually an on-ramp to something that you pay for. But if you go at it that way, you can get, you can get an answer quicker without having to try to formulate exactly, you know, how it would match for a scholarly type article. Um, and, and I do this all the time. In fact, I type CSS sucks, you know, CSS, whatever sucks quite a bit. And that's gotten me through a lot of really nasty situations. So I just want to throw that out there as something to do, or, you know, I hate CSS, whatever thing. And, and that's an easier way to query because if you do that, again, you, you can leverage the fact that other people are trying to treat this as a marketing channel and, and get freebies from them and actually learn how to do things. So that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.